to the Beef Watch Podcast. I'm Aaron Berger, a Nebraska Extension Beef Educator. For today's Beef Watch Podcast, we're going to be discussing a couple of recent articles that are in the 2021 Cattlemen's Day Report. This report comes from Kansas State University, and these articles can be found at the Animal Science website there at Kansas State. To discuss today's topic, I'm joined today by Dr. Casey Olson, who's a range beef cattle professor of nutrition and management at Kansas State University. Thanks for joining me today, Dr. Olson. Hey, it's my pleasure to be here, Aaron. Thanks. Dr. Olson, I've been watching with interest some of the work that's been done there at Kansas State, specifically in the Flint Hills of Kansas, looking at timing of fire, using prescribed fire as a tool to control non-native species in the tall, warm season grass community that you have there. Share with us a little more about the research that you're doing there at Kansas State and how you think that might have application for producers as they think about trying to manage invasive species. Well, as you know, Aaron, the, the Flint Hills of Kansas have got a long-standing fire culture going back about 150 years to the time of, of uh, European settlement. And uh, we're, we're comfortable with prescribed fire here. And uh, you know, our widespread use of, of uh, that range management tool for that amount of time is, is what has kept the tall grass prairie in its, in its native state. You know, I've seen areas where fire has been excluded for as little as 25 years become a scrub forest that's populated by eastern red cedar and uh, um, honey locust. But uh, what we found here in the last 20 years is that there are some invasive plants, some very damaging invasive plants that don't respond to our traditional fire regime. And we just had to, we had to switch things up and, and rethink our approach to prescribed fire to get at things like the old world blue stems and Cerisia lespedeza. I guess talk a little more about those two invasive species. Obviously those are different than something like a Eastern red cedar. How did they arrive there in the Flint Hills and, yeah. and what are you seeking to do to try to manage the invasive nature of those? Okay, and if, if I get long-winded on this, Aaron, you stop me. All okay, right. But this story is absolutely fascinating to me. I'll start with Cerisia lespedeza. It was uh, brought to America in the late 19th century by some American travelers to the, the Sino-Indian region of Asia. They could see it had a lot of area. They could see it had fantastic root structure, and they thought, hey, let's bring this to the States and, and use it to revegetate marginal soils. It looks like it's going to be a great forage crop. Uh, they did some wet chemistry on the plant initially, and it had pretty good nutritional characteristics for beef cattle. They brought it back here, uh, began cultivating it in the southeastern United States, and it was brought into Kansas in the 1930s to revegetate strip mine land in the southeastern quarter of, uh, of the state. So what it did is it, it sort of laid in wait for its opportunity. It's a plant that can, that can self-pollinate or cross-pollinate. It is a plant that can develop resistance to, uh, to grazing via concentration of condensed tannins. And, you know, in the, in the ensuing 70 years or so after it was brought into the state, it developed uh, a pretty significant sort of regional fit for our soils, for our climate. Uh, its tannin concentration intensified roughly fivefold in its wild type state. Think, you know, what, what happens to a, a farm pig when it escapes from a farm? It becomes a feral hog eventually. That's exactly what's happened with Cerisio lespedeza. Uh, it's uh, tolerant of poor soils. It's highly, highly fecund. It makes 
one stem will make over 850 seeds per year. Uh, it's uh, canopy dominant, so it tends to shade out the natives. It's, it's mildly allelopathic, so it can prevent germination of both native and cultivated species. I mean, it's really a wonder of destruction. Uh, you know, I've heard people refer to it as the plutonium of the plant community. Uh, we've measured its condensed tannin concentration in the neighborhood of 25% of whole plant dry matter, uh, scorchingly high. And so large ruminants like beef cattle cannot tolerate it digestively. An animal gets a belly full of condensed tannin. Basically, all of the free nitrogen uh, in the rumen becomes bound and unavailable for fermentation. So we've had cows, for example, take themselves off feed after four days of exposure to a contaminated prairie hay. They'd rather starve than put that stuff into their bodies. So oral blue stems are a little bit uh, more recent uh, problem in Kansas. Uh, these, are, these are plants that have also been imported from Asia for forage, but they, they tend to have a very narrow window of quality. And they, they also tend to be very successful uh, invaders for, for that reason. Uh, when they don't get a significant amount of grazing pressure, they tend to, they tend to propagate. And, you know, there are places in central Kansas where uh, yellow blue stem and Caucasian blue stem have moved in and totally supplanted the native vegetation. As you look at these two species, obviously you said that historically there's been a culture fire in the Flint Hills going back 150 years to European settlement and and I would assume before that, when Native Americans were present there, as you looked at what was happening with these two non-native species, it appeared that obviously a traditional spring-type burn was not setting these back. So you started looking at some different options in terms of timing of burns and then evaluated how that might work to have an impact on these. Share a little more of the research that's being done and, and what you're finding with that. Sure. I mean, this, this process in general started back in 2009. I'm a Flint Hills landowner, and I was feeling the same pain uh, that my friends and neighbors were feeling, losing carrying capacity to Cerisio lespedes in particular. Uh, so I, I went at the problem like a good animal scientist should. You know, we first looked for generally regarded as safe compounds that we could feed to beef cattle that would bind condensed tannins in the rumen and prevent them from negatively interacting with dietary protein. And we were successful in that. However, we, you know, we, could, we could sort of stimulate cattle to, to revisit Cerecia lespedeza and graze it, but they weren't consuming it in significant enough quantities to produce what we would call control. You know, we tried uh, co-grazing systems with goats. We tried sequential grazing systems with, with yearling cattle and sheep both of which worked, okay, but there is, there's just not a small ruminant culture of any significance in the Flint Hills. In fact, you know, we need, you know, by my calculations, we would need something like tenfold the number of, of sheep and goats in Kansas that we currently have uh, to, to graze all the affected acreage. So uh, then, you know, really got driven from a lack of, of options, we started thinking about the growth cycle of Cerecia lespedeza and when it might be vulnerable to damage with prescribed fire. It's a late blooming forb. It does not flower, begin to set seed until September. And um, the seed usually isn't hard and viable until the first frost, which generally occurs here around the 1st of November. So um, we partnered with the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation 
believe it or not, they're as fired up about uh, controlling Cerise Westbedeza as the cattle people are. And, and we embarked on a four-year study, small plot study, to look at the effects of different fire seasons on Cerisia. We, we evaluated the traditional fire season in April, compared that with um, the 1st of August and the 1st of September as alternative burn times. And lo and behold, we had a, a wonderfully strong negative effect on Cerisia Westbedeza. Uh, we eliminated seed production, especially with the the fires approaching September 1st. Uh, we made the surviving plants much smaller uh, in, in terms of dry weight, in terms of height. And we didn't anticipate it, but uh, at the end of the four-year period, we were significantly cutting into the basal uh, cover uh, contribution of Cerisio espediza to the point where uh, we had uh, only one and a half to two percent basal cover on areas that were that were burned in August or September, compared with sixteen uh, percent or more on areas that were burned in the traditional fire window. As you look at the impact to the native plants, obviously your warm season dominated tall grass species there. What was the impact of timing of fire on those native plants? Well, it's very. I'm very glad that you asked that because we were concerned about unintended consequences to non-target plants. So in that initial four-year study, uh, we were very conscientious to do a, a comprehensive analysis of the plant community. So I'll tell you what changed. Biomass did not change. So when measured in July, uh, each burn regime was as productive as, as the other. We didn't change the, the major classes of, of uh, warm season grasses. Uh, and the various growth forms, tall, mid, and short. Um, we got less Cerisio lespedeza, less Baldwin's ironweed, and less ragweed, which we didn't shed a whole lot of tears over, over those decreases because those are generally increaser uh, rangeland weeds. What we did not anticipate and what was wonderful to see is there's a collection of, of uh, between eight and 12 native legumes and native nectar bearing plants that proliferated under those alternative fire regimes. Um, basically habitat plants that either enrich soil or, or attract native invertebrates, which in turn attract uh, native grassland obligate nesting birds. Uh, you know, that, that study along with our, our current study were just submitted to translational animal science and accepted uh, last month. And so we're very excited to see those things in print. All the things we've talked about, Dr. Olson, have been pretty rosy. Have there been any negatives you've seen with the later summer fires in terms of impact to the native plants there? Well, on the plant community, literally no. Basically, with our, with our four years of preliminary data, uh, we were successful in finding funding to do a large-scale uh, commercial grazing study with basically the same approach to fire either spring, summer, or fall. We have not yet identified any negative consequence to those alternative fire seasons. And we've since learned that, you know, on average, the tall grass prairie region of our state pre-settlement burned uh, about every two years. Most of those fires uh, occurred during the summer months rather than during the spring. So I, what I think we're doing is mimicking a more natural fire pattern with our so-called alternative uh, fire seasons. 
Now, in our new study, we're incorporating performance of, of uh, yearling cattle. That was a, a big question mark uh, in the ranching community's eyes when we finished our first study. Uh, we're also looking at root carbohydrate reserves in key native tall grass species like uh, big blue stem, Indian grass, little blue stem, and purple prairie clover. And we're not changing root starch or water-soluble carbohydrates in any of those plants with our, with our different fire regimes. You mentioned this briefly, but talk a little bit about the impact to cattle performance with the change of timing of fire. So we're seeing some interesting things. Now, I got to explain just a little bit. You know, when, when people first started talking about this research, it was the summer of 2016, and it, somebody applied the coinage fall burning. Well, what we were doing was, was actually summer burning. And so with our new uh, study, we incorporated a true uh, fall season fire treatment. So we're, we're now burning in April, in August, and in late September, early October. And from a yearling cattle performance perspective, okay, we did not change uh, growth performance if we burned in April or August. Those cattle performed equivalently over uh, two consecutive grazing seasons and 700 and some individual animal observations. We did pull down performance a little bit with that true fall treatment. And as much as, as those, those yearling cattle finished 20 to 30 pounds lighter than the cattle that grazed the, uh, the spring burn to the summer burn pastures. Another interesting thing, it turns out that burning during the true fall season is, is pretty hard on one of our key forage plants, uh, namely Indian grass. So Indian grass puts out tillers all year long, but that tillering process really intensifies immediately before dormancy. And it, if we put fire on Indian grass at, at that time of the year, namely late September, early October, we can, we can harm it. And that may not be acceptable. So we are going to continue to keep these treatments in place for another four years uh, to, to monitor some longer-term effects, primarily on the plant community. Now, I think we have the, the, the livestock performance issue addressed, but we'll, we'll continue to, to monitor livestock performance as well. Dr. Olson, are you starting to see some local producers there apply and utilize the change of timing of fire to their own operations? Yes. Uh, a colleague of mine at uh, Region 8 EPA uh, shared some in-house data with me last fall that uh, 300,000 acres of tall grass prairie burned uh, during August, September, and October last fall. So that's, you know, it's, it's definitely not a majority uh, but, uh, you know, with a total of about three and a half million acres in Kansas and a, another million acres in Oklahoma, I mean, that's, that's a significant inroad. And it's mostly the, the larger commercial ranchers that are, that are making the change. There is a feeling of desperation in the ranching community about the, the carrying capacity that's being lost to Cerecio SVDs. And up till now, you know, the only option we've had for control uh, was herbicide. Okay, which always produces collateral damage in a, in a diverse prairie ecosystem. You know, in spite of the fact of routine herbicide usage in the Flint Hills from 1980 to present, the problem with Cerecio espides has only gotten worse. The timing was, was just about right for us as researchers to, to step into that situation with an alternative. 
and it has been warmly embraced. And you know, we just concluded our, our traditional fire season here in the, in the Flint Hills uh, at the end of April and uh, an uncharacteristically small number of acres, uh, somewhere in the order of half a million, uh, were burned uh, during that traditional fire season, you know, compared to a normal year when, you know, 2.7 million acres burned. So that can mean two things. Either the, the, the weather during our fire season wasn't very good, or, you know, there are a number of individuals who deferred burning this spring so they can evaluate an August or a September burn uh, late this summer. Dr. Olson, anything else around the topic we've discussed today that you think would be valuable for producers to know and understand? Well, let me talk about the human dimension for a few minutes, if that's all right, Aaron. Yeah, that'd be great. So some of your listeners are are well aware of the amount of smoke that's produced in Kansas that travels to Nebraska during the spring of the year. Okay, when we burn at a time of the year when daytime temperatures are warm and nighttime temperatures are cool, that smoke's going to travel in the upper atmosphere until it hits a temperature immersion and then it's going to sink. When that happens over Lincoln or over Omaha or or another major municipality, uh, we can create some pretty significant air quality problems. EPA, for example, is entitled to to find licensed polluters in those municipalities. They haven't yet, but they have that uh, that right. There is also a, a significant impact on human health. You know, people with conditions like asthma, for example, you know, when uh, we exceed EPA uh, limits for fine particulate matter or ozone, those people suffer. You know, I personally visited with a lady from Omaha that uh, is an, uh, an asthma sufferer and two of her children are asthma sufferers. When, when air quality gets bad in Omaha, she and her children have to be hospitalized. I don't, uh, I don't really want to live with that on my conscience anymore. So burning in the summer when daytime and nighttime temperatures are warm precludes the possibility of our smoke descending, you know, in some major municipality. It just, it just doesn't happen. Uh, another thing that's, I guess, fairly critical to some of the larger ranches in the Flint Hills is labor management. You know, when they're getting their yearling cattle straightened out and, and ready to turn out on grass, they're also engaging in a, a high-stress activity like prescribed burning. So for, you know, our, our large landowning clients here in the Flint Hills, they they like not only the control over Ceresio Espediza that they're getting, but they like the fact that they can now move burning to a time when those yearling cattle have normally left the Flint Hills and moved on to another station in the beef production chain. The last thing that I'll mention, and this might be of particular interest to your listeners, Aaron, is fire safety okay, is, is much, much greater during the growing season than it is during the dormant season. You know, when, when grass is green and the, the fine fuels at the surface of the soil are carrying the fire, it's very slow moving. It's less volatile. There tend to be a lot more uh, days during August and September that are so-called safe fire days in terms of wind speed and things like that than there would be in the month of April. I mean, it's, it's almost, you know, for a traditional Flint Hills burner, it's almost boring to watch one of those growing season fires travel. They, they tend to move at about one quarter of the wind speed. Well, Dr. Olson, the things you've suggested, I think, really make a lot of sense. I think timing of fire, also how that fits historically, just the positive impacts, not only to 
the grazing land and the resource there, but also to your neighbors in other states. Uh, really seems like this is, I think, something that's going to see greater adaptation and use going forward. Well, you know, as a, as a university person, Aaron, you know that uh, you know, when we give something to our producer base, they generally make it better. And, you know, there are enough, enough of our stakeholders that have been using alternative prescribed fire seasons, you know, since 2016, where the, the institutional knowledge is starting to grow and they're sharing their experiences with, uh, with friends and neighbors. It's just been wonderful to, to be a part of that process. I really appreciate your time, Dr. Olson. I appreciate the research you've done. Thanks for joining me today. Hey, my pleasure, Aaron. Thank you. Well, for more information on the topic that was discussed in today's Beef Watch podcast, I would encourage you to go visit and view these articles. Again, these can be found in the 2021 Cattlemen's Day Report, and those are at the Kansas State University Animal Science website.